The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. It's now midway through June and schools haven't been open for almost three months. We take a look in this podcast at the lasting impact on the education gap between pupils during this time. We also have a look at whether or not there's more cause for optimism in the Brexit negotiations. And finally, are the statue topplers that we've seen of recent weeks going about their mission the wrong way? First up, Lucy Kellaway left the FT to become a teacher a few years ago, and these days she's doing all her teaching at home via computer. She writes this week's cover piece and talks about how worried she is for those in her class who will be falling behind because of lockdown. She joins me down the line now, together with Paul Johnson, director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which has been doing the work looking into this educational inequality. Lucy, to start with, you talk about this inequality and how it even in your class of 25 of economic students manifests itself. Can you explain how? Yeah, you hear about it a lot in abstract, but as far as my students go, I post my work up on ghastly Google classrooms and out of 25, there are eight who are very, very diligent. They will do it perfectly. They're really learning. There are another eight who will do it in a very perfunctory way. And the rest don't do it at all. I have not seen any work from them whatsoever since this began in March. And what makes this so worrying is that those eight students are the ones that I was really worried about all along. I mean, we've heard quite a lot about poverty and some of them don't have laptops and some of them don't have broadband, but it's not just poverty. I mean, some of them have really bad sort of behavioural difficulties or special needs. One way and another, they are doing no work at all. And that is just heartbreaking. And there's no way for you to do anything, as it were, from the other side of the screen? No. And within school, I mean, the structure of school is so powerful, especially in a school like mine that's very strict. So we have real sanctions. They don't dare not do their work. But what can you do? I mean, I can't put them in detention when they're at home. It's also problematic for us to ring home too often because you can't ring the kids themselves because of child protection rules. And you have to pity the poor parents. I mean, Paul has four children, so do I. Mine are a bit older, but I can hardly imagine the hell of being called by every class teacher times four kids once a week. So there is very little you can do. I send them pleading emails. I don't even know if they read them. Yes. Paul, let's get on to the work that the IFS has been doing in terms of educational inequality in a bit. But as Lucy mentioned, you have four sons yourself. From the other side, as a parent, how have you seen lockdown affecting them? Well, two of them are in um, lower six. One's just finished his, his degree and the other is doing an apprenticeship. It's very interesting what Lucy was saying. I mean, the six forms that the two of them are at are Uh, I'd say less active than it sounds like uh, Lucy's school is being. One of them has had no online teaching at all uh, and has been entirely down to him doing the work 
that set, and I'd say he's in the middle group that Lucy referred to as being somewhat perfunctory, he's engaging but nowhere near enough. You know, it's extraordinarily frustrating, the lack of uh, engagement actually from from the school in their education, and these are fairly bright middle-class kids uh, doing A-levels. I suspect there is a male-female divide. Both of them have girlfriends who are doing rather more than they are. (laughs) (laughs) Of my eight, should we say swatty, I hope that doesn't sound disparaging, I mean it as a compliment student, the vast majority are girls. So it'll be very interesting actually from a sort of research point of view to see whether there is a bigger gender, an even bigger gender gap in exam results uh, next year than, than normal. I, I sincerely hope that they're back to school as normal in September. I mean, the other thing, of course, that's happened is that being in lower six, they would have been taking their sort of end of year exams uh, around about now, on which the schools would have based their A-level predictions for when they apply to university. Now, they're not taking those exams, and again, being slightly lazy boys, they were hoping to pull it all out of the bag in the exams, as they fair to be fair to them, did at GCSE. So again, it'll be interesting to see what this episode does for predicted grades for different uh, different kids and different genders and people from different sorts of backgrounds. But so far, preliminary results on the impact on educational gap is already out and it's something that the IFS pool has been looking into. What are your findings be? Well, I suppose in some ways they're not terribly surprising, but there are very big gaps in school engagement between different sorts of schools. So private schools are very much more likely to be continuing with online teaching and other forms of direct engagement with pupils than are state schools and to a much bigger degree. But even within state schools, those that uh, serve more affluent communities are themselves more likely to be, significantly more likely to be offering active engagement and uh, and online teaching the uh, better off pupils are spending significantly more time on schoolwork um, over this period than less well-off pupils. And to be fair, that is by no means entirely down to what the schools are doing. That's also down to levels of parental support. And actually for quite a lot of pupils, just lack of quiet study places and access to computers and and so on. Though, as, as Lucy said, it's by no means only that it is also down to a whole range of other differences between between children which are it's very hard to take account of when they're not in the classroom and lucy you point out in your piece a really little talked about aspect of all of this which is that the mental health of students themselves yeah and i mean this is an age at which kids are most vulnerable these ages that i teach when they're adolescent Some of them are living in tiny flats with no outdoor space. Some of them have quite difficult family circumstances. They have nothing to do except for the guilt of the work that I'm setting that they're not doing. I was particularly shocked in making some calls home and sounding that the voice of the students had changed from something that was quite lively to something that sounded really dead. Um, Some of them were still in bed in the afternoon. That was my experience on a minuscule sample group. But when I talk to all of my now teach colleagues and to other teachers, all of us have had the same thing. So I don't think we've got the stats on this yet, but I think when they come out, they're going to be absolutely horrendous. I mean, we already know more generally that that there are no mental health beds because lockdown has been so devastating for people with existing mental health conditions. 
but I think it's very, very serious indeed. And Lucy, can you talk a little bit about the long-term impact of this? I think some listeners might be listening in and thinking, well, you know, if schools come back in September, then there would just be a blip in their education. But there have been studies that show that this impacts lifetime earnings and earning capacity. Can you explain why there is just such a long-term impact of missing out on school? Yeah, in a way, you would sort of wonder about it because you think, okay, they've missed just over it, assuming, and my goodness, like Paul, I really sincerely hope we are back to normal in September. Assuming we are, they've missed a bit over a term. So you'd think, oh, well, surely with a bit of excellent, you know, a bit of Saturday schools and summer schools, they can catch that up. It's not how it works. It's not just that you lose content that you're not teaching, you lose all the stuff that you've learned already and even more so you learn the habit, you lose the habit of working. So the Sutton Trust did some research saying that just in the lockdown that we've had so far, we've obliterated 10 years work in in, in closing educational gaps. There's been some work in the US saying that this will have a significant effect on the lifelong earning power of the most vulnerable students. So This isn't something that we can just come back in September and give a few little revision packs and everyone will be fine. Paul, I think the hope for your kids from what you've said sounds excellent. They will pull it out of the bag as they seem to do, you know, at the last minute. But we're not really, you know, we're we're talking about the more vulnerable kids. and uh, And I think to expect to see a lifelong effect isn't necessarily too gloomy. Mm. And Paul and Lucy, a question to you both as we finish up is just what do you think is the right balance to be struck between parents and teachers fears and the cost of students that we've been talking about so far? Because it has been teaching unions, some of them and some teachers and some parents who have been reluctant for students to go back to school. So how do we balance those two things? Paul, do you want to go first? Well, I think there are two sets of issues. One is around the capacity of schools to take all children back if there is two-metre social distancing. I mean, clearly, in that circumstance, very few schools will be able to return to anything approaching normal teaching. And if that's what we want, and if government insists on that, then it really is in the in the hands of government uh, and local authorities and others to come up with, you know, dramatic policies to provide different levels of space. I think the second issue is, and I'm, you know, I'm not a medic and I'm not an epidemiologist, but one does not have to read very much to see that this uh, this virus really doesn't have very much effect on children and particularly on young children. So the risks to the kids are clearly extremely small. And my understanding, though this, this is more likely to be wrong, is that the risks of them being vectors in terms of infecting others is, is also relatively small. So it's not even clear that this is a particularly effective policy in terms of keeping the virus... Uh, under control. Uh, you, and, where, where, and my understanding uh, of uh, teachers' concerns is more about the, the practicality of really bringing children back when they're supposed to be two metres distant. There are also, I mean, teachers obviously are older than children, and there are more health risks for them, and clearly they will need the same social distancing rules as everyone else. But the I think the issues for children are rather different. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And I mean, I'm obviously not a scientist either, but that's my reading of of, of what we know. So I am really want to scream at the government saying, get them back faster, 
um, more of them and all of that. I mean, teachers have had a lot of blame in this, I think, unfairly. I completely agree with Paul. It's that if you're told it's two metres apart and you're talking about an old-fashioned school with narrow corridors, that becomes very, very difficult. And that's why we're in the ridiculous situation where in my school there are only 40 kids back at the moment but in a school capacity that's almost 800. As for the parents, look, parents are worried about their children that's what it that's what you are programmed as a parent i don't really want to tell parents that they've got their risks wrong but if they have i really do blame the government in hyping everyone up into such a state of advanced terror that why should parents feel that that you know if the government's saying there is some risk in sending their kids back and they make it optional for parents? I, I don't think it's crazy for parents to say, well, I don't want to do that with my child. But I think if we stand back and get a better picture of the risks, as Paul has already said, I think it becomes really pretty clear that for teachers, for students, for all of us, we want to see them back in school as normal, definitely by September. Lucy and Paul, thank you very much. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Next. James Forsyth sounds a cautious note of optimism about Brexit negotiations in this week's political column. He joins me now, together with the FT's public policy editor, Peter Foster. James, can you explain where your optimism has come from? So I think I think a few weeks ago things were in a very bad place in that these kind of Zoom negotiations weren't really getting anywhere. The two sides were just restating their fairly maximalist negotiating position and making very little progress. I think there is definitely a change in mood. There is more optimism on the UK side than I think I've detected in quite some time. And I think you look at the high-level meeting on Monday, there was no breakthrough at that meeting. But, you know, neither side briefed against the other afterwards, which is some kind of form of progress. Uh, And also, if you look at this intensified schedule of talks during July and August, I think that's, to my mind, suggests that both sides are at least serious about seeing if they can break the deadlock and I think that you are beginning to see floating around some potential compromise I think the UK's willingness to accept tariffs does open up some possibilities because it offers the chance for the EU you know it essentially gives the EU a tool and says well look if you want to go off the level playing field we would then be able to use these tariffs as a way of ensuring that we are not undercut so I think there are some signs of progress I think things definitely look better than they did a month ago and that tariff thing is a new development that the UK has now essentially not saying that zero tariff has to be the way forward yeah so so Michael Gove said a while back look We feel so strongly about the level playing field and not wanting to accept what the EU is requesting that we would rather have tariffs. The EU's initial reaction was, look, there's just simply not time to go through the entire complicated tariff schedule working out what should and shouldn't have tariffs on it. What is now floating around is the idea that the deal could say the UK has the sovereign right to move away from the EU's level playing fields should it so choose. But if it does that, then the EU would have the right to impose tariffs on 
UK goods. Now, this is this is just one idea floating around. But interestingly, there, there is some precedent for this. Because if you look at the Northern Ireland Protocol, what it says is that if the EU adopts a new act within the scope of the protocol and the UK doesn't adopt it in Northern Ireland, the EU has the right to take remedial measures. In other words, the EU would have the right to impose tariffs on Northern Irish goods as a response to that. And I think that is an interesting example of a possible way forward. Peter, do you share this optimism? Yeah, I do. I hear much the same as James. I mean, I've actually been optimistic for quite a long time. If you read the UK's draft free trade agreement that was published in the middle of May, it absolutely screams that we want a deal. We want measures for what they call rules of origin to keep supply chains running. We want a special deal for the roll-on, roll-off ports, the short straights that take 10,000 trucks a day. We want special measures to keep professional services moving. So I think, you know, what we've really seen is just sort of the end of the chess-beating phase. You know, we're perfectly happy to have the same trading terms as we do with Australia. You know, Australia is 12,000 miles away. The EU is 21 miles away at its closest point and is linked to us by a tunnel. And it doesn't underestimate how little time there now is in order to get a deal and how little time there is for business to adjust to that no deal. But I do think we've got past the chess beating phase. Of course, the next step then is once you've got past chess beating, what can you accept? Because a lot of the UK asks are simply not going to be acceptable to the EU side. And so the next phase will be the UK side will need to ask you know, whether or not it's prepared to do a deal on the terms the EU is prepared to offer. And, you know, that will be when we get to crunch time, which will be in, in sort of September, I suspect. So I suppose what Peter is alluding to there is British compromises. James, do you think that there will be more compromises on the British side? If there's going to be a deal, both sides are going to have to move. I think, I think the British side, I think the, the areas where they will not want to compromise are immigration policy. I mean, that will be... That will be a kind of big red line for them. But they will feel they have to be able to say at the end of this, this is over. And I think the other, which is, a, which is a kind of big issue, is the ECJ. I think the idea of the ECJ being able to issue any kind of direct instruction to the UK is unacceptable to the government. I mean, you know, I thought if you were to look at Michael Gove and House comments on Tuesday, it was, a, it was a broadly emollient performance, but it was clear that on that, they're not prepared to move. Now, Obviously, the EU will say only the ECJ can rule on EU law. But, but so I think that, you know, that, that you'd have to have the ECJ at least kind of one step removed. But I think, I think on lots of other things, I think there is a potential compromise. And I think also, I wonder if there is more potential for this to be a process rather than an event. You mean so we can still be figuring things out after this December? Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that part of the attraction of the idea of if the UK does that, the EU could level tariffs is it, is it gives everyone a little bit more time. I think one of the other things is there is a culture shock here for trade negotiators because normally in trade negotiations, all that happens if you can't reach an agreement is that the status quo continues. That means that the, there's not very really much there's generally not very much urgency to these negotiations. This is a totally different kettle of fish because if the two sides can't reach a deal by the end of the year, from 2021 onwards, they will be trading on World Trade Organization terms, which will you know, lead to tariffs and considerable disruption. So I, I think this is a very different kind of negotiation than one we've seen before. Interestingly, I think the UK side is so determined to rule out an extension because I think it thinks that that ticking clock 
works in its favour this time round. Peter, when we have these discussions about Brexit before this, it seems like fishing and the level playing field were the two intractable problems as well. What, what happens on those issues? Have they been solved? It's interestingly, you know, this straw man you'll hear Michael Gove and Boris Johnson setting up about, I find that optimistic about, about state aid. We won't have the ECJ overruling us. And, you know, to James's point about the UK taking countervailing measures, that is the obvious fix to the state aid issue, which is that the UK has its own regime, which has reference to EU standards, and the Competitions and Market Authority runs that regime, and DG Competition in Brussels runs the EU regime, and the UK undertakes not to take egregious steps to undercut the level playing field. And if it does, then the EU, which is fairly normal in, in trade negotiations, imposes countervailing measures. Now, given that half our trade goes to Europe and we wish to retain strong trade links, one would suspect that actually the UK is not going to go off the reservation on state aid because the cost of doing so will be significant. And so, you know, on on the other bits of the level playing field, on environment, on workers' rights, there isn't, I don't think, a great appetite to suddenly slash workers' rights. I mean, there might be on the hard Tory right, but I don't see that going down too well in the red wall. So an awful lot of this sort of chest beating, as I say, is kind of straw man stuff. And I think the level playing field issues are fixable. If you get a fix on state aid, then you can fix the rest, I think, because Johnson will come back and say, I'm free, we're independent, uh, you know, get the bunting out. And just like he did last time when he, you know, left Northern Ireland as part of the kind of regulatory envelope of the EU and claimed a great victory, you know, as long as Johnson can sell this as a great victory and freedom, then he'll get away with it. Fishing is trickier because, you know, plays into the Scottish politics. Again, you know, the fix there is going to have to be some kind of fudge, some kind of delay that gets us over the line because we can't have the entire EU-UK trade negotiation upended over fishing, which represents, you know, less than 1% of our economy, but we know it's incredibly politically sensitive. So again, Johnson needs something there that allows him to say, we've got back control of our waters, we're a sovereign power, we sell all our fish, a huge amount of our 70 plus percent of our fish into Europe, so we're going to have to have an access deal As long as Johnson can say, I've got more fish for our fishermen, and there won't be too much specificity, I suspect, then you can see how a deal can be done. And I'm firmly of the view that, you know, a no deal simply isn't a durable solution. It doesn't get you anywhere, and it's why we won't do it. I disagree with James about the ticking clock. I think this negotiation is going to head into exactly the same place the last one did, which is, you know, the EU we'll run this into the end zone, we'll run it into September, October, force a bunch of compromises onto Johnson and he'll have to sell them. Well, we'll have to get you back then, Peter, to see if you're right or James is right. James and Peter, thanks very much. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And last, do the statue topplers of recent weeks actually display an ignorance about the non-white history of the British Empire? Journalist Tanjir Rashid says that they do, and that they come at it from a distinctly Eurocentric view of the world, despite the Eurocentrism that they are purporting to fight against. He joins me down the line now, together with journalist Nadine Batchelor-Hunt. Tanjir, can you walk us through your argument? Well, I, I 
rather than thinking about, you know, whether this statue should have remained or that statue should have been removed, I was thinking more about the movement to remove these um, imperial monuments from our public place, you know, um, across the board. Um, and I, I, I was thinking that the monuments that we do have have actually informed my my life personally and, and the lives of many Black and Asian people close to me, including family members. And I just wanted to sort of think about what these monuments mean beyond just totems of, of suffering. Uh, and in fact, totems of suffering can, can even be quite meaningful in terms of how we sort of uh, negotiate our identities and our, and our lives here in Britain. Um, as I say in my piece, I used to sort of walk past the uh, statue of Clive of India uh, several times a day when I worked in Whitehall and far from feeling oppressed by it it actually informed my sense of really the centrality of empire to British policymaking and if it weren't there I wouldn't have thought about empire as much and the legacy of empire both you know good and bad and let's be clear overwhelmingly um, a negative legacy for for people around the world especially my family and so I do speak as somebody who is very attached to my Bengali heritage and very attached to the stories that have been passed down from you know my parents my grandparents about you know the the difficult experiences of living under British rule, um, really calamitous experiences, um, and yet uh, my feeling is not to be oppressed by these by these monuments on the whole. Uh, I find that they offer some some kind of uh, value to people like me. Now, Nadine, in Tanjiro's piece as well, he talks about this statue that, that neighboured Colson statue in Bristol of Ramahan Roy, an ambassador from the Mughal Empire. Now, this is a man who was a reformer and he came from one of the British colonies. But despite the movements in the recent weeks, we still don't know much about people like him. So do you think Tanjiro has a point when he says that the decolonized movement has focused too much on who to pull down rather than who to put up and understanding a more diverse history? So I think- I think this is something that needs to be discussed because I think there's this misunderstanding uh, and this focus that's been put on statues when actually it's, it should be the start of a conversation. So when we're talking about decolonization, it's not just about removing statues and putting them in a museum with an explanation of what they did. It's about starting a conversation about people like Ramahan Roy so they can enter the, his, the Brit- British history in the same way that people like Colston have been celebrated. It's about shining a light on the whole situation so while at the moment it may feel that we're focusing on Rhodes and we're focusing on Colston it's a kind of the first step in the right direction and when I was at university and we were campaigning on decolonization it wasn't just about you know statues in fact at my college I was part of a campaign that repatriated a Benin bronze that had been looted by the British Empire back to Benin and the college have finally decided to do that so decolonization I think has almost been hijacked by statue topplers and everyone's seeing it through that lens when actually it's about Mm -hmm. diversifying the text we study at university diversifying the history we study celebrating statues like Ramahan Roy things like that and I think you've made a really good point when it says you know are we just focusing on statues to take down or not statues that should be celebrated or even statues that should be put up and I do think that's something that's been drowned out by you know let's topple Colston let's topple Rhodes and I agree I think People that have been following decolonization movements at university and stuff know that the movement isn't just about roads. But I think the way PR has come across and the way that it's been covered in the press and even the way activists have approached it when they've spoken to the press has kind of 
you know, not done the movement justice and kind of presented it as a one-dimensional movement when it's not. No, I, I, I completely agree with Nadine. Now, now, when you listen to the leading intellectual lights of the decolonised Roads Must Fall movements, they all talk about uh, learning about the rest of the world in a, in a more curious and, and enlightened fashion. But when you look at the mass of demonstrators, and I, I know these people very well, many of them are friends of mine, acquaintances of mine, they were there in Bristol and in Oxford, and they're not really curious about the rest of the world. They keep returning to these central figures, Cromwell, Clive of India, Cecil Rhodes, Churchill. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, their understanding of history is ironically extremely Eurocentric. And this is, in fact, I think, um, very comforting to them. Because when I think about what these protests really mean, and I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter here, I'm talking about the distinct um, protests about certain uh, monuments in Bristol and Oxford and elsewhere. Uh, and when you think about what they're really demonstrating for, it's more about white guilt than about justice or learning about black and Asian people. And white guilt is is quite a, a self-interested, self-centred and egotistic emotion. White liberals are essentially very happy with any understanding of history that puts them at the centre of the narrative. And when you speak to most of the people who are supportive of these demonstrations and these protests to remove monuments, uh, this is what they keep returning to, the centrality of, of white people in, in the history of the world. And, that, and, and that's really the opposite of what I think the, you know, the best of the decolonization and, and roads must fall thinkers and academics are calling for. David Olishoga made the very good point that it would be a shame if this became a yes-no statue issue. But unfortunately, that's what it has become. And that is uh, extremely Eurocentric. I think this. I think you're like. I'm not. I don't disagree with what you've said. That I think. Maybe I don't specifically just agree with the white guilt thing. But generally, I think the the nuance of the debate has been lost. I think that most people, like for example myself, I was happy to see the statue go. I think it's done more to educate this country on colonialism than anything really has in the last few decades. I mean, we're having these conversations. I, people at university, people in particularly in the black community, in the Caribbean community, things like slavery are very still at the front of our mind. I mean, my last name is a consequence of slavery. So it, it's conversations that have been happening within black communities, but haven't been happening on a national scale. So when, you know, Colston fell, it was like, oh, suddenly we're talking about this. But I agree. I think with anything that tends to get a lot of media coverage, it's reduced to a two-dimensional issue, you know, or a one-dimensional issue. It's either this or it's that. Um, and I 100% agree with you. What we need to be doing next is learning more about our history, you know. Okay, so we've started by saying Colston was an awful man, but who were the protagonists of this story? If we know who the antagonists were, who were the protagonists? Should we be celebrating them? And of course we should be. So I agree. I, I completely agree with you. The only thing I disagree with is this white guilt thing. I think... For some people, I think they have made it very self-centered and quite narcissistic thing to to struggle with. And they've kind of made out, you know, we're the worst people in the world. We're the worst. And it's like, rather than, you know, mindless, oh, aren't we awful? It would be like, OK, our history has some bad sides. We've probably played a role in not revealing this awful history. How do we do something proactive about it? Rather than just focusing on, oh, we did stuff wrong. It's like, OK, things went wrong. What can we do next? Like, what do we want the future to look like? And I think that is a frustration that I'm hearing from you and from other people as well. And to be honest, it's one of mine. It's like, let's do something constructive moving forwards rather than stagnating on this idea of, oh, Britain was awful. It's like, OK, who were the, who were the protagonists? Let's talk about them. What Nadine points out is an interesting tension for white people in this debate, which is essentially about white 
white ancestors, but also um, when they are trying to help, as it were, when they are trying to be allies in in, the, in a sense and also trying to educate themselves. There is that difficulty for white people because what space should they occupy in this debate? Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. And, and I suppose I'm being a classic sort of critic, sort of sniping from the sidelines. But I, I would say that I'm very disturbed by the narrative that's solidifying among the left and, and liberals, that black and Asian people are were just sort of passive victims of the empire. They were enslaved and they were colonised and they were oppressed. And, and this is quite an undignified way to view um, black and Asian people, because uh, the, the truth is, you know, uh, black and Asian people were, were very active in in this period they were they were thinking they were writing they were campaigning against the empire in in many ways but there's there's just such little interest in in any of that and 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 but the histories of black and asian people are different in that as i said like the 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 transatlantic slave trade quite literally erased black names black history who we even were so it, it, the difference between uh, um you know the history of of the african diaspora is that our history was quite literally erased so we don't actually know much about where we came from. I will never know where my ancestors came from in Africa. And I think that's that's a bit of a difference when it comes to other colonies, because, as I said, it, it's hard to explain what it's like to look back and think, you know, what who were they? Where did they come from? I've done a DNA test, but I'll never know. So when it comes to, I think it's important to distinguish, and this is a broader debate to have another time, about, you know, black and Asian. And the fact that we have similarities when it comes to colonialism is is an important part but when we talk about things like the african slave trade it quite literally robbed us of our history so we don't have the same kind of record of it as say asian people would uh, i completely agree and and, and uh, i i find it very you know moving what you what you just said about not knowing who your ancestors were and I, and i think that the history of slavery the history of the you know the oppression of of um africans and and and, and the slave trade has to be taught and and i th- and i think it is being taught rather well and the, and the crowds turned out to topple and cheer uh, to topple colson and cheer as he was toppled suggests that teachers and campaigners have done a very good job of educating people about uh, about slavery and i think there's more work to be done and i also agree about the point about uh, you know making distinctions between black and asian people and even within them within these groups Tanju and Nadine, we're going to have to stop it there, but thank you so much for joining. And thank you for listening. That's it for this week. You can subscribe to this podcast through all the usual routes and you can subscribe to the magazine itself at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher and you will also get a £20 Amazon voucher. Pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed on the podcast today as well as more from Andrew Doyle, Cass Pennant and Lawrence Fox. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.